That song right there that was sung for us and the songs that you've already sung this morning about our lives being built on the rock, those songs are not accidental this morning. They are driving our hearts, driving our minds toward what this passage of Scripture at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount is, is all about. So this morning concludes our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, going through these, uh, through these passages together. This week, if you're on our email list, if you periodically every week or sometimes every other week receive an email from me during the week, what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to send out an email that essentially summarizes kind of the top 10 things I hope our church family would take away from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, maybe in some way it's the top 10 things I hope I take away uh, from this study on the Sermon on the Mount that has been so satisfying to study, but also so terrifying to study and preach just because what it looks like to be called to live this life where we follow after Jesus. And so if you don't normally get that email from me or if you're a guest of ours and you would like to have that, just fill out that card um, and we'll make sure you, uh, you get added to that list to, to receive that. Also, I wanted to tell you about um, a pretty neat connection, pretty neat opportunity. If you use Spotify, to listen to music. If you don't know what Spotify is, don't worry about it. Just temporarily tune me out. But uh, if you use Spotify to listen to music, our friends at Frontline Church here in the Oklahoma City area, they've also been going through the Sermon on the Mount series, and they've put out about seven or eight original songs that are the words to the Sermon on the Mount put to music. Um, and so if you go to Spotify and you search Psalms from the Mount, or if you just look up Frontline Church on Spotify, but I think it's called Psalms from the Mount, they are some original songs that have been written based on the words from the Sermon on the Mount. And so I've been listening to those. Uh, Jordan Richardson, who's led for us before, and he leads for our students some on Wednesday night, he was a part of some of those songs. And so Frontline's great ministry partners in the gospel think so highly of, of them and what they do in ministry, and so it's pretty neat. Um, they're just a couple of weeks behind us, so I think they've been stealing my sermons as we've been going through this Sermon on the Mount, but uh, they're, just, they're just right behind us in, in this progress. So, hey, one other thing before we, uh, before we get started reading these verses and, and jumping in. At the end of the sermon, so when we finish up looking at this passage, when we finish the sermon this morning, especially if you're a guest of ours this morning, I want you to be aware of what we're doing. When the sermon is finished, we will move immediately into taking the Lord's Supper as our response to what it looks like, what it means to set our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ, to trust in Him. And so we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and then after the Lord's Supper is finished, we'll stand as a church, we'll stand all together and sing a final song. When that song is finished at the end, I want you to know that we stay down here as pastors, as leaders, we stay down here at the front. If God's at work in your life this morning, and he is calling you to follow Jesus, to trust in him for salvation, the people that you have come with, I promise they will wait on you. They will want to wait on you. We will be here to pray with you. I pray that that experience of watching the Lord's Supper take place, of singing those songs, that God would use that to continue to draw you to himself, that you would trust in Jesus. And so when that final song is finished this morning, know that we stay right here. We want to meet you. We want to pray with you. Whatever God's doing in your life, we want to be here for you. So I want you to know how this ends. Sometimes it's 
it's helpful to know where we're going in the morning so you can just be preparing in your heart and your mind of what it looks like to respond to Jesus this morning. So Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read this entire final section starting in verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone, in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. May God bless the reading of his word. So I don't know if you've played this game in your family. Kids, you guys are probably more familiar with this game than than the adults are, but sometimes in our house, just for the fun of it, we'll play this game called Would You Rather? So you throw out two options. Would you rather have one more finger, so 11 fingers, or would you rather have 11 toes, all right? So if you would rather, you're here this morning, you accidentally walked in these doors, so you're gonna have to play would you rather this morning, okay? So here we go. Would you rather have 11 fingers or 11 toes? How many would pick 11 fingers? How many would pick 11 toes? All right, that was actually 50-50, wow. All right, so you get the way, that this, the way that this works, okay? So, would you rather sleep with a skunk or a porcupine? Okay, nobody look at your spouse. Nobody look at your spouse right now, okay. All right, so you get a pick if you would rather sleep with a skunk or a porcupine. How many would rather speak, sleep with a skunk? How many would pick the porcupine? Oh, man, I don't know. That was kind of, uh, kind of divided in half there. Okay, let's see. Would you rather swim in a pool of chocolate pudding or a pool of strawberry ice cream? Okay, would you rather swim in a pool of chocolate pudding 
or strawberry ice cream. We are the most divided congregation. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh, my word. I mean, I knew, <laughs> I knew we had to deal with division, but wow, I think every one of those was almost like exactly, uh, exactly 50-50. So, so the would-you-rather game forces you into these having to pick between, pick between two options. Here's the deal. This final section of the Sermon on the Mount is picking between two options. So the way the Sermon on the Mount works is it's essentially divided into three parts. And I, and I put these up here. They're up here behind me. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is who is Jesus talking about? So 5, 3, chapter 5, verse 3 through verse 16, who is he talking about? Then the middle section is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what that journey looks like. So the who is he talking to, the what does this have to do with my life, and then what you do when you get to the very end here is you get to the why, the why it matters. And the reason it matters is because Jesus is speaking to us, and he's speaking to the people here, the followers. He's speaking to them in what is called two-ways theology. You find this throughout your Bible. If you've been doing our Route 66 Bible reading plan, you know we've been in Proverbs this last week. Proverbs is full of this two-way thinking. The way two-ways theology works is there is a way that leads to life, a way of flourishing, a way of leading to eternity with the Lord, the life that he has called us to lead, and there is a way that leads to destruction, that leads to death, that leads to separation from God. And you say, but what about the third way? Well, remember, this is two-ways theology. There are two ways. There's a way that leads to life, and there's a way that leads to death. At the very end, we'll come back around and we'll talk about why there's not a third way. We're going to address that when we get to the end of our time. But I want you to know that what we are doing today can feel like a would-you-rather. Like, why did I only get two options? Where's three and four and five? No, there's a way that leads to life. And there's a way that leads to death. Verse 13. So Jesus says, well, enter by the narrow gate. So enter into the kingdom of God. The way into the kingdom of God is when you enter by the narrow gate. That is what he is calling us to do. Why? What's the reason behind that? It's kind of surprising. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. So there are some words up there that don't seem like they should go together, and they're underlined there at the bottom. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, and those who enter by it are many. Man, if it's wide, and if it's easy, and a lot of people are going down that path, that must be the right one. Because surely, if it's wide and easy and a lot of people are going that way, that, that, that should be the way that leads to life, right? No, it's not the way it works here. Jesus says that actually is the way that leads to destruction. So the way that manuscripts work of the Bible as they're passed on, some of the early manuscripts don't even have the word gate there. And the reason scholars think the word gate isn't even there, it's just a wide path, is because in this way, you just kind of go along with the flow. It's this idea, I haven't even entered through a gate, I just kind of got caught up in neutral, and I just went down this path because it was wide, 
It was easy, and everybody was going down this path. Now, kids, teenagers, college students, I know that you guys have never told your parents this before, but sometimes you use a phrase like, come on, mom and dad, everybody is doing it. (laughs) So everybody has a phone, or everybody gets to stay up until 11, or everybody gets to dress like, you know, we use these type of phrases. The path is wide, it's easy, a lot of people are doing it, so it must be right, and then your parents look at you and say, yeah, but you're not everybody. (laughs) You're not everybody. Just because everybody is doing it, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you go and jump off a cliff? And Well, if it was cool, maybe, you know. Just because the way is wide and easy, and many are going down that path, does not mean that it leads to life. In fact, it leads to destruction. Verse 14. So instead, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So you mean there's a wide and easy and popular path, and that actually leads to destruction, and there's a narrow and hard and lightly traveled path, and that leads to life. And Jesus is saying, absolutely, that's the way that this is is set up. There are two ways, one that leads to life, one that leads to destruction. The one that leads to life is surprising because of how narrow it is. And in fact, the word hard in verse 18 is a word that is used in other places in Scripture to deal with suffering. So Jesus is letting the people know here at the beginning of his ministry as he's giving them some, this sermon about following him, he's letting them know that the way to follow him is going to be a narrow path. Not many people are going to go down that path, and if you do go down that path, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be characterized by suffering. And then there's one of those incredible word plays that you get in the book of Matthew. The word for lead, so The gate is narrow, the way is hard, and it leads to life. That's a very particular word. And the only other place that it is used in Matthew is when Jesus is led away to be crucified, when he is led away to death. So Jesus says the gate is narrow, the way is hard, and it's going to lead to life. When we think about Jesus being the gate and we think about him bringing life, John chapter 10 is where our minds go. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes, and we've used this before on Sunday mornings at Emmaus if you've been with us. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's actually the wide path. That's the easy path. I have come on the narrow path, but I'm the gate that you may have life and have it to the full. So what's Jesus saying here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He's saying, I'm not just offering you two options for life as if just pick either two, it doesn't really matter, just pick your religion, it'll be fine. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying, I am the gate, I am the way that leads to life. There's a thief that wants to lead you down a path that looks wide and looks easy, and a lot of people are going that way, but it actually leads to destruction. And you don't need me to tell you that that is a very hard message. It's a hard message to hear, it's a hard message to deliver it, but it is a life and death message. 
And nothing matters more than understanding that following Jesus, trusting in him, giving our lives to him leads to life. Life now and life eternal. Going away from him leads to destruction. It may not be immediately evident, but ultimately will lead to death and destruction. Now, here's the question. So why would someone pick to go down the wide path? If you're kind of trying to track along, why, if, if it seems so clear, Owen, why would you just not follow Jesus? Well, remember that path is hard. <laughs> remember that path is not immediately obvious that it leads to life. But not only that, you get to verse 15 and you find out why not everybody would go down the narrow path. One of the reasons comes up in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So what Jesus is saying here is there will be people who will come along and they will say, hey, come follow me. Go down this path. It's really going to be good, but it turns out they're not telling you the truth. Jesus calls them false prophets. He's saying it looks good on the outside, they look good, they look religious, and here's the surprising thing. Here's what we have to get from this. The wide path that Jesus has talked about, the wide gate that actually leads to destruction, here's the thing. A lot of people on that path can look very religious, can look very good on the outside. And man, that's hard to hear for those of us who have grown up in church. Those, that's hard for us to hear who are recovering Pharisees in, in some ways. That you can have a wide path that's leading to destruction, but many on that path can look very religious. And not only that, they can sound very religious. And so you may be like, well, so how do I know? Ah, very end of that, you will recognize them by their fruits. So it may not be immediately evident, but Jesus says you will recognize the path a person is on. You will recognize a prophet whether they are true or false, not ultimately by their words, but by the fruit of their life, by their conduct, by the people that they produce around them. Primarily, though, by whether or not they're following the path that Jesus has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, which says that we're not to be fooled by what someone says without looking at the quality of their life. What is the fruit of that person's life? Now, when you hear this idea of prophets and fruit, there are Old Testament passages just exploding all around this. Jesus is not just randomly making this up. He's drawing from so much from the Old Testament. I want to show you one place in the Old Testament that he's drawing from, and it's the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're going to look at the other place here in just a minute in Ezekiel, but Jeremiah chapter 6. You're getting these prophets that are coming along as the people are being sent into exile, and they're saying, don't worry, it's not that big a deal. And here's what Jeremiah says. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Okay, so here's the question. How can we recognize 
if someone is acting as a false prophet? How can we recognize if someone is actually a wolf, but they're wearing sheep's clothing? How do we, how do we know that? One indication is greed. I'm in it for what I can get, not caring about the people that I'm speaking to or the people that I'm caring for. You find that idea in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 is addressing leaders in the church, and Peter says if they are after shameful gain, greedy gain, don't have anything to do with them. So if someone is acting like a prophet, and they're saying, hey, here's the way you should go, and that person is greedy, major red flag, major red flag. They practice deceit. What does that mean? Just old school hypocrisy. One thing on the outside, something completely different behind the scenes. The church landscape, um, just kind of where we live in 2019, there have been a lot of leaders. This is not new. This has happened for centuries, but it seems like it's really spiked a lot lately. There are church leaders who are coming out in the press and you're finding that they were one thing in public, but they were something completely different in private. That's what it means to practice deceit. And so Jeremiah is saying, if you want to identify a false prophet, you're trying to determine if their character matches in private what they're talking about in public. Are they authentic? Are they transparent? Can you trust them is ultimately what it, what it comes down to. And then it says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. If a prophet says, or someone speaking religiously says, hey, come down this way, it really doesn't matter particularly what you believe, as long as you just believe something, or it's really going to be okay, it really doesn't matter if you respond to the word of God, it's going to be okay. Huge red flag. To speak peace where there is no peace is not helpful to anyone. This word from Jesus about a wide path and a narrow path, it's hard. It's difficult, but to say something different than that is not helpful to anybody. It would be giving peace where there is no peace. So Jesus says, watch out for these false prophets. Go back to verse 16 in, in, your, in Matthew 7. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree ultimately bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So the question is, what does it look like to produce good fruit? John chapter 15 is your help here. Now, if you're a Bible writer, if you like to write notes in your Bible, that first set of verses that we looked at, verses 13 and 14, our connecting point was John chapter 10, okay? So, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, our connection is John 10. Verses 15 through 20 in the Sermon on the Mount there, chapter 7, 15 to 20, our connection is John 15, if you want to go back and, and draw the connection for later in Jesus' teaching ministry. John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So someone who is not following Jesus, someone who is acting as a false prophet, 
they might produce something that looks like fruit, but it's not the real thing. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not telling you to go replicate what happened in this story. I'm just telling you a story, okay? So uh, to give you an illustration of this, we had uh, uh, a friend down the road who had a tree, and this guy really wanted fruit to grow on that tree, but his tree would not grow fruit the way he wanted. And so we decided to help his tree uh, grow fruit. So we took fruit from another tree, went and hooked it onto his tree, and he got really excited because he thought his tree had, had grown fruit. And then we had to tell him, like, no, sorry, your tree still stinks, but uh, <laughs> it's still diseased. That's fake fruit that was put on, put on your tree. Like, these verses are saying, if you are connected to Jesus, you will bear fruit. It will come from your It's not something you can fake. Nobody else can tie it on to your tree. It's going to come out of your life as a result of God's spirit at work in your life. Why can a false prophet not ultimately produce good fruit? Because they're not trusting in Jesus and the spirit of God is not at work in, in their life. When you're trusting in Jesus and God's spirit is working in your life, that fruit will come. Look at, uh, go back to verse 21. Chapter 7, verse 21. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this section because we talked about it last week, but chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. So all these things that look good, and yet verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This section of verses, it feels like a description of the people who are the followers of the false prophets. Because the false prophets could do two different things. The false prophets in verses 15 to 20, they could either say, hey, just take it easy. It's a peaceful journey. You're going to end up fine. Don't worry about it. That's one option. Or the false prophets could also go the direction of adding all these legalistic outward indicators of what it means to really follow Jesus and say, no, you actually have to do this and this and this to prove that you're a religious person. And Jesus is saying, wait, wait, wait. It's, you could do the greatest spiritual-looking things imaginable, but if you do not have a relationship with me, it will not matter in the end. And then he gets to verse 24. This famous passage about our lives built on the rock. And there's some imagery in these verses that is particularly hard to hear just because of what our state is going through right now. So, um, like I said earlier, we don't in any way want to make light of this, but it gives us really powerful imagery of what this looks like in, in these verses. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That idea there, that we don't just hear the word of God, but we do it, it's very prominent in the book of James in the New Testament. There are tons of connections between the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, 
in the book of James. And so if you're looking for some other places to read in Scripture to tie these things together, reading the book of James while we finish up the Sermon on the Mount would be a great practice because there's so many connections there. I don't just hear the word, but, but I also do it. The very end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So leading them to follow Jesus, leading them to follow me, and then teaching them not just information, but teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Our lives are built on the rock. when We hear the word of God, and then we respond in action, in obedience, in doing what God has called us to do. This is what it looks like to be wise in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs. You hear the word, and then you go put it into practice. Verse 25, the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. All this suffering, when it talks about rain and floods and winds, remember that focus on suffering that we talked about earlier on the narrow way? All of that imagery in the Bible is imagery of suffering. So you're facing all this difficulty. It feels like your life is being beat up. It feels like you're being overwhelmed. All these things continue to come at you. How are you able to hold strong? Is it because you grin and bear it? No. It's because your life is built on the foundation of Jesus. You have heard his word and you've responded to him. You've trusted and obeyed. When all that difficulty comes, Lord, I hear you, I trust you, and I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna obey you. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Here's the thing. When Jesus lays out this house built on the rock, house built on the sand, are the conditions that the house faces any different in both options? No, it's the same exact circumstances that happen to the house. Is the house itself any different? No, not the house itself. The only difference is the foundation. When you get to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel that I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah and Ezekiel deal with this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel has some amazing imagery about this idea of a house and it beginning to fall. Ezekiel chapter 13 this language is going to sound familiar to you at the beginning. Ezekiel 13, 10. Because the false prophets lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it's going to fall. So stay right there for a second. Here's a house or a wall that's built. It's not built particularly strong, but it's covered with whitewash, and so it looks good on the outside. If anybody looked at it, they would say, wow, look how beautiful and great that looks, but we know it's not strong. 
So verse 11, the second half of it says this. Rain will come in torrents. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly the language that Jesus is picking up in Matthew 7. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth, and when the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? Man, what a phrase. So, so get a picture of this. I live my life following all the church rules. I look good, I sound good, I know how to do it all, but underneath, there's no foundation. Underneath, there's no rock. And so all the trouble comes, what good is the whitewash going to do at that point? It looked good on the outside, what good does the whitewash do? None whatsoever. My house is broken. <laughs> I'm barely holding my life together. I struggle to make it to church on Sundays. I never feel good enough, but I do know that Jesus is my only hope. My house doesn't look like much, but it's built on the rock. Does it matter what your house looks like? No. Does it matter what the foundation is like? Eternally it does. What is my life built on? The rock. When I hear the word of God, I trust in him, and I respond with obedience. What do we take away from this? What, what do we do with this when we think about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God? I've tried to summarize this in, in a couple of um, just kind of bullet points. If you guys would skip ahead, just to stay on track with time, let's skip ahead to that. In the kingdom of God, what do we have to do? We have to distinguish external appearance from internal, eternal reality, okay? So in the kingdom of God, one of the most important things we have to do is we have to distinguish the difference between the external appearance of something and what is eternally, internally true about that person or even about that church, I have a good friend um, who pastors here in, in Oklahoma, and he said that one of his prayers for his church is, God, please knock the shiny off of us. Um, that's a good prayer, because he felt like his church had built itself up in such a way that they were more concerned with their shiny exterior than they were with what was happening within the life of the church, the relationships, the fruit, the evangelism. That's a good prayer for us to pray. God, if necessary, knock the shiny off so that you can get our attention and we can think about what it looks like on the inside, what it looks like at the foundation of things. Because in the kingdom of God, it's easy to be distracted. All that glitters is not gold. And all gold doesn't necessarily glitter. Something can look good and not be the real thing. And just because it's the real thing doesn't necessarily mean it's going to glitter. We're not concerned primarily what our lives look like on the outside, what our church looks like on the outside. We want to know internally, eternally, are we following after Jesus? But following on with number two, in the kingdom of God, in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a strong focus on doing the will of God. 
So as we turn, as we repent and follow Jesus, he calls us to do the things that match up with the will of God. This is where, and this is so important, this is where we cannot draw a wedge between the action-oriented Jesus and the belief theological Jesus. You see this show up a lot of times where people will say, man, I wish when it comes to Jesus, we could just follow what he says that we're supposed to do and just love other people and not worry about all that belief theology stuff. Well, the two are tied together. And then on the flip side, there are people who say we need the belief theology side, but we shouldn't worry about justice or action or doing things. And you end up, you drive this wedge as if the two don't belong together. They do. And this reality that we believe in and we follow and we trust Jesus, and yet at the same time we obey and we live that out and we do the will of God, those two things have to go together in the kingdom of God. And the good news about that is that can solve a lot of our social media debates and our things that break us apart about is it doing or believing? Ah, the two things are always meant to go together in the kingdom of God. I don't know why I have one and two repeated again. Sorry about that. My list fell apart. What that leads to is the urgency of life and death that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That what matters more than anything is that I trust and follow him. So I said at the beginning, there's two ways. A way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. Why are there not three ways? Or in other words, let me say that again. There's one way that leads to life and that is through Jesus. Why are there not two ways that lead to life? Here's the reason I believe that that's the case. Because if there were two ways that led to life, do you know what we would want? Three ways. And if there were nine ways that led to life, do you know what we would want? Ten ways. And if there were 99 ways that led to life, do you know what we would want? A hundred ways. Because it is not the case of there is only one way to life. The issue is, we want our way. But that's not how it works. Because the only way to be made right with God is through Jesus Christ. And so we could say, I wish there were two ways, but we know our own heart. We wouldn't like the two ways. We would want a third way, or a fourth way, or a fifth way. The great gift of God through the gospel is that there is a way. The way through Jesus. Is the way divisive? Yes, it absolutely is divisive. There's a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. But it's also gracious and glorious and leads to life that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. And so this morning, what we are committing ourselves to is Jesus, we trust you. And we will follow, we, follow you and we believe that when our life is built on you, whatever happens around us, we'll never be able to fall. We can trust in you. And the way that we do that as a church, the way that we remember that as a church is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we come together and we take the bread and we say, this is the body given for us. We take the cup and we remember the blood that paid the price for our sins. And so this morning, as we respond to the word of God, a way that leads to life, that way is through Jesus. And so we celebrate that together. Which means that if you're here this morning 
and you're not a follower of Jesus, this meal, there's no shame, no embarrassment in passing to the next person. By eating the cracker, drinking the juice, that does not somehow let you check off a box and make yourself right with God. But what you will see is as the bread and the juice come around, there are gonna be verses on the screen. I hope you'll read those. I hope you'll reflect on those. I hope as immediately when that final psalm is finished this morning that you will come forward so we can talk more about what it means to follow Jesus. Parents, if you've got kids with you who have not trusted yet in Jesus for salvation, I know it can be sometimes difficult during this time. This is just a great learning experience, the greatest presentation of the gospel in addition to baptism that they can see that creates questions for them to ask you. I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, those who are helping with the Lord's Supper, if you would come and get into those positions, as soon as you get in position, those who are helping, go ahead and begin to pass the elements. You don't need to wait on me. Go ahead and do that. Let's pray together right now as we prepare to worship in this way. Father, we know that these words from Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, God, they're difficult. They're divisive but they are so full of hope, so full of life. God, it's easy to, in the world we live in, to see what looks wide and easy, and a lot of people are going in a direction, and so it looks like it's the right way to go. But God, we know that through Jesus, we find life and hope and salvation and victory. God, I pray this morning that you would set someone free from depending on their external appearance. God, if there's somebody here and they know that they have been faking it, they've just been checking off the religious box, they just claim to be a Christian because it's what they were taught to do, but they've never experienced your salvation, God, I pray that they would trust in you today, that they would not take of the Lord's Supper because it's something they're supposed to do, because they would partake because they know that in Jesus is found forgiveness and salvation and life. God, knock the shiny off of us. God, make us new from the inside out. Do a good work in this church, even as we worship you right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.